This episode was recorded in 2021. From Luminary Built It Productions and NPR, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, the story of Kim Scott, author and management coach. I walked into the meeting, and there is Sergey Brin on an elliptical trainer wearing toe shoes and a bright blue spandex unitard. And there in the other corner of the room was Eric Schmidt doing his emails like his brain had been plugged into the machine. So probably like you in such a situation, I felt a little bit nervous. How in the world was I supposed to get these people's attention? How Kim Scott developed her style of radical candor in the workplace through her successes and failures as an entrepreneur, manager, and coach at some of the biggest tech companies on earth. The demand for future of work consultants has skyrocketed in the wake of the pandemic. And a large part of it has been driven by employees and their expectations around work. When I got started in radio back in the 1990s, the advice I was given, be the first one in, the last one out, outwork everyone else, roll with the punches, don't complain, and you'll succeed. But today, that advice just won't fly. The evidence is clear. All kinds of employee surveys that have been carried out over the past year or so show that our relationship to work is changing, especially among younger workers. They don't want to be married to their jobs. They don't want to live to work. They want a fulfilling, healthy, balanced life to clock out at 6 p.m. and leave work at work, especially on weekends. Employees at big companies are speaking up and speaking out, standing up against management decisions, organizing, and taking back a lot of power. Now, all of this may seem new, but my guest today, Kim Scott, might call it the latest iteration of Radical Candor. Kim's book, Called Radical Candor, lays out an argument that calls for more honesty, more humanity, and a healthier balance of power in the workplace. Kim spent much of her early career working at a series of startups before she went to Google in 2004 to manage its advertising business. In 2011, she joined Apple, where Kim was asked to train managers on how to lead with candor. It's an approach she learned the hard way after years of making mistakes of her own. But even so, Kim didn't go to college thinking she was going to be some big-shot business guru. In fact, her plan was to fight the Cold War as a Slavic literature major. That's absolutely right. I studied arms control, and I was going to end the Cold War. And look, I succeeded. <laughs> <laughs> but with that... Um, with studying Slavic literature, what was your idea? I mean, did you intend to go into academia in some some form? No, I never intended to go into academia. It seemed too constricting. But what I had a very clear idea that I was going to understand the Russian culture and the American culture and and help us all get along. <laughs> so that was my that was my eighteen year old uh, ambition. Tell me about this job that you had out of college. Because from what I understand, it was uh, you went to go work for a diamond company, which eventually would would morph into a diamond business. Um, yes. 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 So initially, actually, I went to Moscow. It was then the Soviet Union to study arms, sort of 
military conversion, which is swords into plowshares. So mm-hmm. I was writing an article for which I was paid $6 a month mm-hmm. uh, about, about <laughs> this. And that turned into a job with the Soviet Companies Fund, which was um, a fund started by Battery March Financial Management to invest in these converting Soviet defense facilities. And then that ended when the Soviet Union fell. So I stayed, was looking for a job, and wound up working for a diamond cutting company, uh, which was, which was not really what I expected when I studied Slavic literature. But you know, life takes unpredictable turns. Because um, actually, Moscow is the center of diamond cutting, like some of the great, right? Yeah, the diamonds are actually mined in Yakutia, which is in the far east in Russia and mostly north of the Arctic Circle, and that is where the diamonds are mined. But then they're cut and polished in Moscow. A bunch of them, something like a quarter of the world's diamonds come from Yakutia. Hmm. Your job was to what to, to to gather recruit diamond cutters who already had jobs and to convince them to come work for this this American based company. Yeah, this was my first management job actually, and I thought it was going to be so easy. Yeah, just I just thought, just wave yeah, some dollars you, out, right? Yeah. 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 The ruble was worthless and <laughs> worth less and less every single day. And I had dollars. And I thought, you know, as soon as I just told these people what I was going to pay them, that they would come work for me. Uh, but that, of course, was not how it played out. It turned out they wanted a picnic. They didn't just want the money. So I'm on the outskirts of Moscow drinking a bottle of vodka with these diamond cutters. And by the time we finish the bottle of vodka, it becomes clear to me that what they wanted was not just money. They wanted to know that they would have a boss who gave a damn. They wanted to know that if things went to hell in Russia, which they felt like they might do at any moment, there would be someone on the outside who would help get them, them and their families out, who would really care. And this was the moment in my life when I thought, oh, management is more interesting. This whole... This whole idea of management is actually, it's about human relationships. And, and that's why I studied, also, in addition to wanting to save the world from nuclear holocaust, that's why I studied Russian literature, because human relationships are really endlessly interesting. So this, this experience, in sort of your nascent experience in management in your early 20s, must have kind of sparked something, because you, you did this for a couple of years and then decided to go to business school. Yes. Uh, I mean, to be honest, part of the reason I went to business school was it was the shortest of all the <laughs> next steps I could take. And uh, and it seemed to have the, the most wide open exit options. So I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I was like, but I knew I wanted to leave. I'd been in Russia at this point for four years. One mafia was was beheading it's competing mafia and leaving the heads on stakes around the suburbs of the city. And I thought, you know, it's, this is a good time to get out of here. All right. So after working in Moscow, you decide to go to business school. Uh, and after getting uh, your MBA at Harvard, uh, you you go right to work for a company called, I think called Delta 3, right? Yeah, based in Jerusalem. Now, I was back 20 years ago as a correspondent there. So I, I know that... Um, Israelis can be very blunt, yes. right? Um, they don't. They don't. Um, they tell you exactly what they think. And this yes. was kind of shocking for you when you got there, right? Because you, when you got to this company, because you weren't used to that kind of direct, almost aggressive feedback. 
Yeah, no, I had been raised in the South. And so, uh, you know, I was definitely taught uh, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And that was certainly not the, <laughs> that was not the attitude. And I really, it really was, this was good management, actually. I, I did see some good management at Delta III. Uh, Noam Bardeen, who wound up, was the CTO, he wound up um, starting Waze, actually, was wow. the CEO of Waze. And I remember watching him argue with his with his team and I and I remember thinking you know he really respects these people and when he when he disagrees vehemently it's a it's a sign of respect it's not a sign of disrespect because initially right you you're thinking this is unlike anything I'd experienced but people were you you write about this people were like shouting at each other in yeah. the office <laughs> but having fun and moving quickly that was a great. That was a great experience. Uh, the the bad experience that I had at Delta Three was happened when we had to do layoffs, and there for some reason the the leadership of the company did not talk directly to people. They sent in somebody who. Am I allowed to curse on your podcast? Sure. They sent somebody in who I can only describe as a paid asshole to, to sort of do the dirty work. And it was really almost kind of a betrayal huh. because I remember thinking these people are so direct in most cases. But in this moment, when directness and, and respect are most required, because if you fire someone in the right way, it can actually be almost an affirming experience. And if you fire someone in the wrong way, it's devastating. All right, so you eventually leave. You go to the next, a, a different startup, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a commercial mortgage, I guess, internet service provider. It's called Capital Thinking. Yes, exactly. And all, a similarly challenging experience with bad management. Yeah. So in, in my very first job, when I was back in Moscow, I had a boss who paid me less than half of what I should have been paid, a, a man. And this infuriated me. This infuriated me. And when I talked to him about it, it sort of went from bad to worse. So when I took the job at Capital Thinking, the CEO of that company was a woman. And I thought, well, that won't happen to me now. And I helped her recruit the team. And one of the people who we hired, one of my peers, I learned shortly after he joined, was getting paid, I don't know, 30 or 40 percent more than I was. And I wondered, like, why would this be? <laughs> he didn't have any more experience. He didn't have more responsibility. And I went to the CEO and I asked her, I said, why are you paying him so much more than me? And she looked at me and she said, well, he's got a wife and child to support. And I, this, you know, I was like five times more angry at her than I was at, hmm. at the man who had, had underpaid me. And that's not fair either. I mean, I think both of them were doing it for the same reason. They were underpaying me because they could. They could afford to do it. I would take the job. And so they did it. So you decide, I am going to take all of these learnings about bad management, and I'm going to be a good manager and start my own company which yes. was called Juice, a software Juice. company. And what, what, yeah. was, what was the, the idea behind that company? So the idea of Juice was that it was sort of like Google Spreadsheets, but it all happened in Excel. So it, it pulled data, live data into Excel. Uh, this was a long time ago, so, so it seemed revolutionary <laughs> at the time. And I tell entrepreneurs this all the time. When you start a company, you don't think about it this way, but you're kind of 
conducting your own Stanford prison experiment. Uh, By the way, because, I just I just saw Phil Zimbardo at a restaurant yeah. just randomly. Oh, did you? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Just sitting there, well, I said hi to him. Yeah. Yeah. I admire his work. I mean, controversial, <laughs> but but very interesting. But the the issue is when you start a company, you're setting up all of these. You're setting up compensation systems. You're setting up systems for hiring people. You're setting up systems for how people get fired. And those systems really change people's behavior. And if if you don't design those systems very consciously for justice, you're going to get systemic injustice. And I believed, I think like an awful lot of entrepreneurs do, I believed, well, if I'm in charge, you know, everything will be sweetness and light. And and all of these bad things that happened to me throughout my career will not happen to any anyone. But of course, that was unfortunately untrue because I designed the system for my own control instead of designing a system around checks and balances, which are, which are what prevents power from corrupting your company. From what I understand, I mean, you want to create a, a positive, kind work environment, right? Yes. Which lots of people have that ambition. Some people succeed. Um, but you write about some of the mistakes that you made, particularly around hiring, and you you talk about one of of your employees. You call him Bob. It's an alias, yeah. but he he's a guy. To, to, he's a guy, you lo- loved him. Everybody loved Bob, right? Yeah, Bob was smart, charming, funny. Bob would do stuff like we were at a manager offsite one day, and it was at a period in the company's history where everyone was especially busy. So we were playing one of those endless get-to-know-you games, and everybody's getting sort of more and more stressed. Do we really have time to be doing this? And Bob was the guy who had the courage to raise his hand and to say, I can tell everybody's really stressed, and I want to get to know you all. I've got a great idea, and it'll be really fast. And so Bob says, let's just go around the table and confess what candy our parents used when potty training us. <laughs> really weird, but really fast. And then for the next 10 months, every time there's a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So Bob brought a little levity to the mm. office. Everybody loved working with Bob. One problem with Bob he was doing terrible work. He was incompetent. Yeah, totally incompetent. And I was so puzzled. <laughs> One because, problem with Bob was he was yeah, incompetent. He couldn't get his work done. <laughs> and I was really puzzled because he had this incredible resume, this, these great recommendations, great history of accomplishments. I learned much later that he was smoking pot in the bathroom three times a day, which maybe explained all that candy he had all the time. <laughs> but I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was that Bob was handing stuff into me, shame in his eyes. And I would say something along the lines to Bob of, oh, Bob, this is a great start. You're so smart. You're so awesome. Everyone loves working with you. Maybe you can make it just a little bit better. And so let's kind of double click on why I would say such a banal thing. And I'm going to kind of look at this story through the radical candor lens, the, the framework. Part of the problem there was that I really did care about and empathize with Bob. I I liked him and I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Sure. 
And so that is what I call in radical candor ruinous empathy. Like I didn't, I didn't want to tell him uh, that his work wasn't nearly good enough, and therefore I wasn't giving him an opportunity to correct it. And I was frustrating the whole team. So ruinous empathy. Now, but if I'm honest with myself, there was something a little bit more insidious going on because. Bob was popular in the office, and Bob also was sort of sensitive. And so I was afraid that if I told Bob in no uncertain terms that his work wasn't nearly good enough, that he would get upset. He might even start to cry. And then everybody would think I was a big you-know-what. So the part of me that was concerned about my reputation as a leader was what I call the manipulative insincerity part. Yeah. Which is a very natural and normal human reaction, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. I mean, f- when you get on the balcony and you look down on it, you, you want to say, Kim, you got to tell Bob. But at the same time, when we're off the balcony and on the dance floor, we don't yeah. want to hurt his feelings. <laughs> yeah. and, and if he does say, wow, Kim, she's awful, she's such a meanie, and he starts to seed that idea in the company, it could, it could become toxic. It could, although what was becoming toxic and what usually creates toxicity was that I wasn't doing anything about the fact that he was doing suboptimal work. And I realized if I don't fire Bob, I'm going to lose all my best performers. So I sat down to have a conversation with Bob that I should have frankly started 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to him where things stood, he looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? Hmm. And now I realized that by not telling Bob, just trying to be nice, quote unquote nice, I'm having to fire him because of it. Not so nice after all. And it it was terrible. It was a terrible moment. It was bad for me. It was much worse for Bob, of course. But it was also terrible for the whole team. And it was terrible for our results, for our Mm. ability to achieve our goals. And this is the most common management mistake I've ever seen. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. I'm assuming that at that point in your life and career, you had no formal management training. No, absolutely not. You were sort of learning on the job, which is how a lot of young startup founders learn. Yes. Uh, Even managers at really big companies with big L&D budgets often get very little management training, and the management training they do get is often not, not very good. You, you mentioned another um, employee named Derek, and this is a very typical. I've seen this throughout my career, and Derek is somebody who is in customer service who was excellent um, at yes. his job, just terrific. Everyone loved him. Customers loved him. People would send him baked goods, and you wanted to promote him, and he was like, mm, not interested. Yeah, he didn't want a promotion because he what he really wanted was a role on Broadway. And so what he wanted to do was come into work, do great work, leave at five, and then go be in these off-Broadway productions. So I decided that I would hire someone else to run customer service. And that was the right decision. If, if someone says they don't want the job, don't make them take it. But the problem was that I kind of wrote off Derek. Yeah. And... Derek was very frustrated. The the person who I did hire didn't really value the role of customer service. What he really wanted to do was to have my boss's job. He wanted to be the CEO of the company. And he sort of looked looked down his nose on the work uh, that his team was doing. And he sort of thought, ah, 
you know, customer service is, you, you just hire B players to do customer service. And Derek was not a B player. He was an, a, he did great work. Yeah. But, but his boss didn't respect him and didn't respect his work and didn't honor or value his work. We wrote him off as low potential. And there is no such thing as a low potential human being. And eventually Derek got sick of being treated this way and he quit. And then the baked goods quit coming and our customer satisfaction went down and it really hurt the business. And so it's so important that you reward great performance and you don't set up a situation in which everyone is obsessed with promotion and obsessed with management. Being a manager, is it is an important job, but it's not the be-all and end-all. There's a lot of different ways to navigate your career. So knowing what you know now, 20 years later, let's let's re- redo that scenario. Um, you go to Derek and you say, you're awesome, I wanna promote you to run the customer support team. Derek says, Kim, I really, I just, that's, I'm not interested. I'm happy where I am. What do you do next? I would have hired someone to, who wanted to manage the team, to manage the team, but I wouldn't have hired the guy I hired. I would have made sure that Derek got to interview his boss and, right, and right, tell, right. tell me what he thought. That is crucial. And that's all part of going back to creating checks and balances. You don't want to give any manager who you hire sort of unilateral decision-making authority. So you want to make sure that the people who are going to work for someone get to interview them and that they have a say in who their boss is. So that's number one. Number two is I would have honored Derek as an expert. And when new people were coming onto the team, I would have said, if you have a question about how to handle something, go ask Derek. And I would have even, you know, maybe changed his metrics a little bit so that he could spend some percentage of his time if he wanted to do this, which Derek would have wanted to do, teaching people instead of doing the job. Because you get, you know, in in World War II, the U.S. Air Force would bring its very best pilots back and have them teach new pilots. And at first, and the Germans, meanwhile, just flew their pilots till they crashed and died. And it had a short-term benefit for the Germans, but a long-term negative impact. So you want to make sure that you're finding the people who are best in a role who may not want the next big job, but you want to set them up as, as sort of the, I hate the word guru, but the, the go-to people that others can turn to and can learn from so that you're honoring them for their expertise. When we come back in just a moment, Kim Scott finds the workplace culture she dreamt of and develops the managerial style she's become known for, not at a startup, but at Google. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Support for this podcast comes from NPR sponsor Tagger Media. Want to level up your influencer marketing campaigns but bogged down by complicated tech or inaccurate data? Meet Tagger the leading influencer marketing platform that's actually easy to use. Tagger's award-winning platform helps top global brands and agencies maximize their ROI throughout every phase of planning, discovery, activation, and reporting. To demo the sleek, intuitive platform, head to taggermedia.com wisdom. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2004, and Kim Scott is looking to up her managerial skills at an established tech giant. So who does she call? 
an old business school classmate. You had a happened to have a classmate from business school uh, whose name was Cheryl Sandberg, who was working yeah. at, at Google at the time. <laughs> um, you called her and said, hey, does Google have any openings? And you went through a rigorous, I think, 27 interview process yeah. yes. um, and eventually got an offer to to lead a, a team of 100 people working on AdSense, which these are for ads for small and medium-sized businesses. Tell me what struck you when you first got to Google, because you had come from a, a position where you were managing people and and admittedly badly. Yeah. <laughs> what did you see at Google that was different? It was like the resurrection of a dream when I got there. Huh. The, the kind of culture that I had wanted and failed to create at Juice felt to me anyway alive and well at Google. And I, I don't want to take things away from other people who did not have a great early experience at Google. But those first couple of years at Google for me were a magical time this in my career. This is 2004, I think, when you yeah, got there. 2004, yeah, 2004. I was there 2004 to 2010. And what did you see there? I mean, just in terms of how they how they functioned in, in the workplace, what what worked? There were there were a number of things. I would say in just work, I say we all want the same things at work. We know that humanity's superpower is our ability to collaborate. And we also, I think most of us know that there's no horror that we can't sink to when we try to coerce one another. And yet so many companies optimize for this sort of coercive management techniques. And Google really didn't do that. So for example, if you didn't like your boss, you could switch teams without even talking to your boss. Wow. That doesn't sound very radical candor, but when there, when power is involved, you've got to sort of tilt the balance uh, of power. You've got to create checks and balances. A single manager could not hire whoever they wanted. This was a big drink of water for me because I was used to being my own little dictator. And I was told, you know, we don't trust you to hire. You know, we trust teams more than we trust individuals. No manager, no matter what kind of reputation you have for hiring great people, can make unilateral hiring decisions. You couldn't fire people willy-nilly. There had to, you had to go through a process. You couldn't decide who got paid what bonuses. And that effort to strip unilateral decision-making power away from managers really meant that there was there was less bullying and, uh, you know, we've read a lot. There, I'm not saying there was no harassment. There was certainly harassment at Google, but less there than I had seen mm. elsewhere. I mean, the other thing that I noticed was that I was paid. I, I compared the CTO and my co-founder at Juice also went to Google around the same time that I did. And we compared our offer letters. And I was just assuming that I would get paid a lot less than he was. He was a man, he was an engineer, and I wasn't. And like, I had no idea. I knew that I had been mad about being underpaid in previous jobs. Mm. But I had no idea the sort of tax that it took on me. I was really much more able to give my whole self to that job and to, and to work harder because this sort of invisible tax of resentment was just gone. And then the other thing that I noticed at Google was that there was really a very strong culture of respect there. I'll never forget being Matt Cutts. Uh, sure, who was an early who, engineer there. I know yeah, Matt. Yeah, exactly. Sure, very great influential. guy. Yeah, great guy. Somebody I had gotten to know and like. And he and I went to. We were concerned about an AdSense policy, and and we went to Larry together. Just Larry, Larry Page, Page one, yep. of the yep. one of the founders together, and we were having an argument. Matt and I had one <laughs> position. Larry had another, and Matt at one point was 
sort of yelling at Larry. I was worried he was going to get fired. And then I looked at Larry's face and he had this big grin and he loved the fact that Matt was pushing back and he was really encouraging him. And that made a big impression on me. I was, I felt for one of the first times in my career, free at work, even more free at work than I did in my own company. Hmm. So from what I understand, you thought this was so interesting that you wanted to apply it to your own team. Like you basically wanted your own team. You encouraged the the 100 people working under you to criticize you, to tell you when you were wrong. Um, is that is that right? Like to really just be candid with you? Yeah, yeah. And, and this, you know, this I learned actually from Sheryl Sandberg, who was my boss. I had to give I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the meeting, and there is Sergey Brin, one of the other founders, on an elliptical trainer wearing toe shoes and a bright blue spandex <laughs> unitard. Not, not really what I was expecting to see. And there in the other corner of the room was Eric Schmidt doing his emails like his brain had been plugged into the machine. So probably like you in such a situation, I felt a little bit nervous. How in the world was I supposed to get these people's attention? And luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new AdSense customers we had added over the last couple of months, Eric almost fell off his chair. He's like, this is incredible. Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineering resources? So I'm feeling like the meeting's going all right. Yep. In fact, I now believe that I am a genius. Yep. And <laughs> I, I, as I left the room, I walked past Cheryl, and I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back. And instead, Cheryl says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh, wow, I screwed something up in there, and I'm about to hear about it. And Cheryl began the conversation not by telling me what I had done wrong, but what had gone well, not in the feedback sandwich. I think there's a, a less polite term for that. <laughs> not in the feedback sandwich sense of the word. But eventually, Cheryl said, you said um a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And with this, I breathed a huge sigh of relief, and I made this kind of brush-off gesture with my hand. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's a verbal tick. It's no big deal, really. And then Cheryl said, I know this great speech coach. I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush off gesture with my hand. I said, no, I'm busy. I don't have time for a speech coach. And then Cheryl stopped. She looked me right in the eye and she said, I can see when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now, she's got my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of Cheryl to say I sounded stupid, but it was really the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. Because if she hadn't used just those words with me, and crucially, she would not have used those words with other people on her team who were perhaps better listeners than I was. But if she hadn't used just those words with me, I never would have gone to see the speech coach and I wouldn't have learned that she was not exaggerating. I literally said um every third word. And this was news to me because I had raised millions of dollars for two different startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And it really got me to thinking, what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? But also, why had no one else told me? It was almost like I had been marching through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth, and nobody had had the courtesy to tell me that it was there. And as I thought about it, I realized it really boils down to two simple things, caring personally and challenging directly. And that, that doesn't seem so radical. And yet the combination is so rare that I called it radical candor because 
Very often when we care too much about someone's feelings, we give in to ruinous empathy. Mm. We fail to challenge them Mm -hmm. and give in to ruinous empathy instead of being radically candid. You know, that story that you told us, Sheryl Sandberg, is is so interesting in part because of the way that you frame it and the way that you reflected on it. And in a choose-your-own-adventure, you know, book, right, let's say you could come out of that conversation, especially in the context of how we talk about workplaces today, in a very different way. I mean, some people might say, you know, Cheryl could have just ignored the ums because Kim was running a successful part of the business and clearly impressed uh, the the leadership. Like, who cares if she said um? Like, that could be one of the paths that you take on the Choose Your Own Adventure. Another path could be somebody might say, you know, you just never call anybody stupid. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really important to, to think about one thing. Radical candor gets measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear. Yes. And yes. Uh, and so Cheryl knew me relatively well at this point. So we had gone to business school together. That helped. And and we had been working closely together. And, and Cheryl had had several opportunities to show me that she really did care. So, for example, when I moved from New York to California to take the job, I was lonely out here. I was single and I didn't really know anyone. And she could tell that I was lonely. And she introduced me to a book group. I'm still friends with a bunch of those women to this day. So so when I had a family member diagnosed with cancer, she said, you go get on an airplane. You need to be with your family right now. Your team and I will write your coverage plan. We have your back at this moment. That's what teams do for one another. But the other part of it was that she was very direct with us when we screwed up. But because we knew she cared, we knew that it was coming from a good place. And the other thing about that story is that other people on her, she wouldn't have had to say those words to other people on the team because mm. they would have heard her the first time. Mm. Like, I think the, the other thing about radical candor is you need to be conscious of whether you need to be moving out on the challenge directly dimension. And that's basically what you need to do when the other person is either defensive or just not hearing your feedback. And it's hard to to move up on care personally without going the wrong way on on challenge directly and winding up in ruinous empathy. So often, in fact, when I was at Apple, we would hire actors to do these role plays. And we hired actors because actors can cry on command. And these, as soon as the actors would start to cry, these badass software engineers would be like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's okay. It's no big deal. But it did matter. And it wasn't okay. And it was just a role play. <laughs> like, don't back off what you're saying, but do take a minute to attend to the emotions in the room. I think, I think that one of the biggest problems with feedback is that we tend to dismiss the emotional signals that mm-hmm. we're getting. But when when we communicate, we communicate on an intellectual plane and on an emotional plane at the same time. And if the moment that someone becomes emotional, you say, don't take it personally, please just eliminate that phrase yes. from vocabulary. Because if you say, don't take it personally, then you are refusing to listen to and to, mm. and to understand the emotional signals that you're getting and you're not going to you're not going to communicate very well. It's like when the nurse is about to take blood and and says relax. Yeah. I'm never yeah. relaxed. You're about <laughs> to put a needle in my arm. I'm not relaxed. Yeah. Yeah, don't tell me to do something that's impossible. In just a minute, to encourage radical candor in the workplace and encourage feedback, Kim Scott pulls out the big guns. 
a stuffed daisy named Whoops-a-Daisy. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. This message comes from NPR sponsor Wix.com. If you're ready to build a successful business online, go to Wix.com and start by creating your website. You can choose from over 800 designer-made website templates to showcase your brand the way you want and with advanced SEO and marketing tools you can expand online. Join millions of people running and growing their businesses with Wix. This message comes from NPR sponsor Future. What are the best workout programs? The ones that are custom-built just for you. Future is the new workout experience that pairs you one-on-one with your own fitness coach. Your coach will map out a plan based on your goals with workouts delivered to your phone each week. Future, your Apple Watch, and the app all pair seamlessly so you can communicate with your coach, track your progress, and celebrate your achievements. Get started with 50% off your first three months at tryfuture.com NPR. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So it's the late 2000s, and Kim Scott is rocking it as a manager at Google. And she credits a big part of her success to encouraging, even celebrating, feedback. There's a definite order of operations to radical candor, and it all begins with soliciting feedback. So in every single one-on-one I had with people, I would I would let them get through their agenda items first, and then I would save five minutes at the end and say something along the lines of, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? And and there's there's a few important things about that. Just identifying the question you are going to ask. So I like that question. I actually, I stole it from Fred Kaufman, who is my coach at Google. And, but other people don't like that question. So the most important thing about your, the question you're going to ask to solicit feedback is that it sounds like you. And then when you get the feedback, you've got to reward the candor. You've got, and you've got to be sort of theatrical about rewarding the candor. At one point at Google, some customer had given me one of those big glass statues. And I'm like, what, what do I do with this thing? And so I, d- I declared it the I was wrong, you were right statue. And I would go and put it around on people's desks. And that was really important. Sort of the theatricality of a leader being eager to be proven wrong is important. A- another thing that I did at Google to try to create this culture was I, I brought in, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewrite history a little bit. I'll explain to you why. I brought in a stuffed daisy. <laughs> and okay. it was actually a monkey. And I got feedback later that that was racist. So, so it, it, correctly. I, I mean, um, I, I should never have chosen a monkey. That was a big mistake. So a stuffed daisy, whoops-a-daisy. And I, what I would do is I would, I would come in to the all hands, so 100 plus people, and I would say, look, Here's my biggest mistake of the week. I want to hear your biggest mistake. And the person who made the biggest mistake is going to get two things. They're going to get instant forgiveness, and they're going to get to keep this stuffed daisy on their desk for, for the week. And it became just sort of a fun part of our all-hands meeting. And it, it helped sort of reinforce this idea that no news is bad news, and bad news is good news, because we learn from what we do wrong. And, and that was helpful. When does feedback create a an environment that actually stifles innovation and creativity, right? Because sometimes 
feedback isn't right. Feedback is wrong. Like the things people give you feedback yeah. on and their yeah. perspectives are just not they're not it's not good feet it's not smart it's not helpful i mean let's be honest some feedback's terrible yeah yeah not some feedback is really horrible so the thing you can do is first of all you can identify the 5 or 10% of what the person said that you can agree with just to demonstrate that you're not shut down to feedback you're not automatically defensive and then you have a respectful conversation with the person about why you disagree with the feedback. Again, this is counterintuitive. I think instinctively, a lot of us fear that a disagreement is going to hurt a relationship. But the fact of the matter is, what's really going to hurt your relationship is either ignoring feedback that someone had the courage to give you or saying, thank you for the feedback. You know, I, I don't know about you, but when someone says that to me, I, I, that is not what I hear. I hear F you. I want to I wanna sort of call out some specific ways that feedback goes wrong. Mm -hmm. Sometimes feedback reflects unconscious bias, gender bias, racial bias. Yes. Sometimes feedback actually reflects reflects conscious prejudice. And sometimes it's not feedback, it's just bullying. And so the question is, what do you do when what you're getting is bias, prejudice, or bullying masquerading right. as feedback? That is hard. I mean, we're living in an environment now where it's becoming much clearer that certain types of managers, and, and I, I, I don't want to stereotype, but let's just say white men may not have been as conscious of these things. Um, and, yeah, right? yeah. They, uh, because how would they be? They haven't they haven't been the, the, the victims of them. Alan Eustace, who's one of my favorite leaders, was one of my favorite leaders at Google, used to do this thing with his team where he would stand up in front of a couple thousand engineers and he would say, if you're underrepresented on this team, and by that he meant if you're if you're a woman if you're black, if you're Latinx, if you're underrepresented on this team and you have been harmed by workplace injustice in the last week, pretty much 100% of the underrepresented people on the team raised their hand. And then he would say, now, everybody put your hand down. Now, if you have been unjust to one of your colleagues in the last week, raise your hand. Nobody raised their hand. And so it is, this is one of the things that I struggled with when I wrote Just Work. Like, I hate to think of myself as a victim, but even more, I hate to think of myself as a perpetrator. And so sometimes we're the person who was harmed. Other times we are the person who caused harm. Other times we are the upstander, and an upstander is a bystander who actually intervenes. And other times we're the leader. And in each of these different roles, we, we kind of have different levels of responsibility. So Aileen Lee told me a great story. She's the founder of Cowboy VC. She told me a great story about walking into a meeting with two colleagues who were men. They sat down at a long conference table, and then the folks from the other side, from the company whose, whose business they were trying to win, came in. The first guy sits across from the guy to Aileen's left. The next guy sits across from the guy to his left. And Aileen had the expertise that was going to win her team the deal. And so she started talking. But when the other side had questions, they directed them at her two colleagues who were men, mm -hmm. not at Aileen. And it happened once. It happened twice. And eventually, one of Aileen's partners stood up and he said, I think Aileen and I should switch seats. That was all he had to do to totally change the tenor in the room. Everybody realized what they were doing and they stopped doing it. So that was, that was sort of a simple example 
level of an I statement working, you know, no, no huge deal, but it worked out really well. But of course, sometimes it's not unconscious bias at play. Mm. And I think this is one of the reasons that unconscious bias gets met with some skepticism yeah. is that very often we assume everything's unconscious bias, but sometimes it's not unconscious bias. Sometimes it's quite conscious prejudice, but sometimes there's no conscious prejudiced belief going on. The person's just being mean. And that is what bullying is. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's so hard in the moment to know how to respond to bullying. I think one of the many mistakes of feedback training is that it teaches us to respond to bullying as though it's bias. And this is a mistake I have made many, many times. In fact, when my daughter was in third grade, she was getting bullied on the playground. And uh, I was kind of encouraging her to say, oh, I feel sad when you blah, blah. And, and she banged her fist on the table and she said, mom, he is trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell him he succeeded? And I thought, gosh, you know, that is a really good point. That's very, so, it's I, a very good point for a third grader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, she's very, she was able to articulate. Why would it's I give him that radical. power, right? Yeah. Yeah, how radical candor here. She was she was giving me some feedback. Uh, but she was exactly right. And and so I realized a you statement, if an I statement invites someone in to understand things from your perspective, that's a great response to bias. But if it's bullying, you want a you statement, which kinds of pushes kind of pushes them away. Like you can't talk to me like that. Or if that feels like it might escalate, say, what's going on for you here? Or even just like, where'd you get that shirt? Uh, the, the point of a you statement is now you are in an active role because you're asking the other person the question. You eventually left Google uh, and went to Apple, and, and you were hired to, actually hired to teach a class about management at, at what was what was called Apple University, this, their sort of internal uh, school. And what I love about this is that you went in as as sort of your own experiment. You said, like, like I want to learn even more about management, and I'm going to use my stories of success and failure to teach this class and then to learn. Yes, it was it was incredible, actually. S- Steve Jobs had decided that the management training that they had at Apple was not good. And so he wanted to throw it all away and start from, from a blank sheet of paper. And this, it was a big decision to leave Google, actually. I, after I had kids, you, you kind of reassess what's important to you. And I realized I really didn't care at all about cost per click. <laughs> I mean, that was doing really well at Google. But the thing that really got me out of bed in the morning was building the team, helping the culture of the team translate to 13 different countries, and helping the people on the team take a step in the direction of their dreams. And so how could I do that at scale, not just for one particular team, uh, but I kind of wanted to shed the operating role that I had and really focus on the management side of things. And from what I understand, this is really where you began to understand this idea that you call superstars versus rock stars, which was goes back to this earlier experience you had at Juice with Derek, which is you kind of never really gave as much I, – I, I might be um, mangling this, but you, you didn't – um, you, 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 early in your career, you seemed to be dismissive of people who weren't interested in kind of moving up the the the, the hierarchy, right? And and at Apple, you learn that actually, you need a combination of of those people to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. There, there was a leader at Apple. I remember talking to her, and she said, 
You know, the you really have to manage people who are in superstar mode very differently from people who are in rock star mode. And I thought, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> What's the difference? And she explained to me, people when they're in superstar mode are they're gunning for the next job. They may not even be on your team very long because they're they're on a super steep growth trajectory. But people, when they're in rock star mode, they're doing excellent work, but they're not necessarily gunning for the next job. And and if you give it to them, you'll screw everything up. You know, they don't want they don't want your job. They don't want your boss's job. They don't want to be Steve Jobs. They just want to do a great job. And that was when sort of, that was a big aha moment. And that was that was the moment when I realized how badly I had screwed up with with Derek. Because people when when they are in in superstar mode, you want to make sure, first of all, you want to make sure that you've got redundancy because they it's it's almost shooting star. They may not be with you very long. And you want to make sure that you are giving them new challenges, opportunities for growth that you know uh, how you're going to get them the the promotions or whatnot that they that they long for but when people are in rock star mode and we're all in both modes by the way I, I try to it's very tempting to label people you're a superstar you're a rock star but we're all both at different points in our career very often at companies managers save up all the highest ratings for the people who are gunning for a promotion which means you're uh, you're giving lower ratings to people in rock star mode than they deserve and that's not fair because all of us at certain points in our lives have big things going on outside of work that demand and deserve a fair amount of attention. And it's very hard to be on a steep growth trajectory and dealing with those things at the same time. Your latest book is called Just Work, Get Shit Done Fast and Fair. And I want to use this as an opportunity to leap off into a question around the new generation of people in the workforce. Now, I am, I'm a Gen Xer. And I think you are too. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I started out in, in in the workforce, it was sort of the boomers were dominating everything. Um, yeah. And and they would say things like, oh, you guys are all in a hurry. You just want to, you know, you don't want to wait your turn. You don't want to pay your dues. And I, I remember hearing that and feeling frustrated. Or they would, they would say, uh, you know, you demand all this feedback. Now I hear my cohort saying that about – the same things about the new but but my question is is it is it different or is it just basically the same story being repeated again in this generation yeah you know i really believe that it is the job of the younger generation to challenge the older generation that, yeah. this is how we yeah. make progress as humanity i do think one thing is different which is that very young people are accomplishing incredible things in ways that they didn't, I think, earlier. There weren't as many, you know, 20-something billionaire CEOs. I think that's a good thing. I think people's career paths can take off in almost a vertical way now. And you don't have to sit around and pay your dues. But why should we sit around and pay? Like paying dues? Like, what is that about? So my son the other day at um, at the dinner table quoted, I thought he made it up, but he told me later he was quoting a meme he had seen on, on YouTube. He said, tradition is just peer pressure from dead people. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I felt that was really important. I mean, we, we've got to we've we've got to be willing to see things new and and to listen to the feedback from our young employees because there's a lot of wisdom in it. So when you're asked by companies to come in and help them navigate expectations from from new employees around what a work environment should be like, for example, you know. 15, 20 years ago, uh, companies, maybe not Google, but companies like Google would talk about the employees as a family. We're a family. That's yeah. really out of fashion now, right? That now yeah. it's like, no, no, we're not a family. We come here. You pay me money. I will do the best job I can do. And then I will leave when my day is done. Um, and that's very different from from because I remember when I began my career, the advice I was given was, hey, you want to succeed? Be the first one in and the last one out. Make sure everybody sees you when they get in and make sure everybody sees you when they're leaving. And I did that. But that's not advice I would give to somebody today because that's not we're living in a very different environment. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, for one, don't do my best work when I uh, when I'm exhausted and working too many hours. So I think, you know, I think in in tech, at least there are times when work can go. It's it's almost worse than the old family thing. Yeah. Like people are eating breakfast, lunch and dinner at work. They go to the gym at work. All their friends are at work. The, instead of going out to a bar, the bar is in the office. And I think that's unhealthy. I think that it is really important to, to leave work. I also think it's important for managers to leave space for different ways that people like to work. Mm. There are people who do work really well 80 hours a week. I am not one of them. I cannot work in that I will not be productive if I'm expected to work. Even 40 hours a week is a lot. <laughs> Give me 30, please. But I can do great work. And so I think part of our job as leaders, especially in this new hybrid environment, is to give space for for people to work in the way that works for them. One of the most talented people who worked on my team at Google, he really needed two months off every year. He needed to go travel and take pictures and drink a lot, or I don't know what he did, but he needed to take two months off a year. But in those 10 months when he was there, nobody was more productive. And so I realized it was my job to sort of navigate the bureaucracy of the company to make it possible for him to get what he needed in order to be maximally productive the other 10 months. And so I think figuring this out is going to be really important, uh, especially in this new hybrid world. Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor and Management Coach. Her newest book is called Just Work. Get it done fast and fair. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary, Built-It Productions, and NPR.